The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Summer Institute. Disordered Desires, Bringing Grace to Modern Sexuality. Um, The topic of this workshop is how to love Christians who are struggling with same-sex attraction. And what I want to do is run through a number of uh, points that I've got, uh, seven uh, to be precise, and what I thought we could spend the remainder of the time doing is is just uh, discussing this whole issue. And if there are questions you want to ask or points you want to make, there'll be, um, I'm sure, plenty of of opportunity to do that. But uh, let me begin by thanking you for caring about this issue and for wanting to love Christians for whom this is a personal issue. I'm presuming that's why you've, you've come to this session. But let me pray for us uh, as we begin. Commit this time to the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the love that you have shown us in Christ, uh, a love that is to overflow from us into the lives of others. And as we think particularly of Uh, those who struggle with same-sex attraction, we pray that you would give us wisdom to know how best to be a blessing to them, how to love, how to be a good support. Uh, Please equip us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. I'm assuming most of us here are either counsellors or people in some kind of, of pastoral role. So that's kind of how I'm pitching this. And I've got a few points to make, and then, as I say, there'll be plenty of time to... Um, open this up for, for Q&A. So, and these aren't in any particular order, so don't read anything into that. But the first point is this. Don't duck the issue. So even before we've come alongside people for whom this is a personal issue, uh, we need as a Christian community to not avoid the topic. So this is more of a general point, and I guess particularly for those of us who have any kind of influence in shaping our church culture, and in particular in shaping what is taught, um, if our Christian friends, if our churches don't learn about this issue from us, they will learn about it from the world. Um, Every time we open a magazine, every time we go onto the internet, every time we watch a movie or a TV show, we are being discipled by the world. And we are being discipled by the world in a very particular way when it comes to the issue of sexuality. And so it is imperative that as churches we see to it that actually those in our church families are taught and equipped how to think on this issue. I don't know what it's like here in terms of the pressures, But certainly back in the UK, one of the common excuses I hear particularly pastors make as to why they don't address this issue is because they don't want to lose their evangelistic platform. And they worry that the moment they raise this issue, the world will effectively shut them down and uh, won't listen to anything else they say. And I can think of some prominent churches in the UK who have a policy of not speaking on the issue of sexuality. And uh, my, my point to you, and I plead with you on this, is actually that is a dreadful dereliction of responsibility. And evangelism is not a good enough excuse to avoid teaching the whole counsel of God to the people of God. Uh, don't seek a platform for the gospel if you are not willing to lose that platform for the gospel. 
Uh, being unashamed of the gospel means that we are unashamed of all of it. So that's the first point. We need to make sure actually we don't avoid this issue. And the fact that you're here and the fact this conference is going on makes me suspect that's not your primary danger. Uh, Second point is this. Let's make this issue safe for people to talk about. Um, It was about seven or eight years uh, for me before I felt able for the first time to to mention this issue uh, to my church pastor. Um, It is the kind of issue a lot of Christians don't yet feel safe opening up about. Uh, There's a lot of shame. There's the fear that actually we're not supposed to have these feelings if we're Christian. The fear that we might be kind of ostracized or snubbed. Uh, The fear that we might even be kind of pushed away. And so we need to do in our churches what we can to, to make this issue safe. And there are a number of things I think we can do. The first is we need to show that we expect this to be an issue Christians struggle with as well. That actually Christians are allowed to battle with this particular form of temptation. The thing that finally prompted me to share with my pastor was a sermon he was preaching on Romans 1. And during the course of his exposition, he he kind of paused in his sermon and spent a few moments just saying this and this issue of homosexuality is one that will affect a number of people with us here in church today. And he said, let me say, if that is you, please don't feel you have to suffer in silence. And I remember him saying, I'd love for you to feel able to share with me if that's an issue that you are battling with, and I just want you to know you're not on your own if that is the case. And that was the first time I had ever been given any kind of signal that this was something a Christian might be battling with let alone permission to then talk about it. Uh, It's good in our churches if we can use testimonies of Christians who are wrestling with this issue to kind of put the issue on the table for other believers. Uh, If we don't have folks who are in a position to do that, um, a number of us in the UK have put together a website called livingout.org, O-R-G, And the aim of that Living Out website is to, we've filmed various Christian testimonies. Uh, Most of them are about five or six minutes long, so they're they're designed to be testimonies you could easily use as a clip in a a meeting or a a church service. Uh, We need to be careful in our use of language. Uh, The number of people who I heard using the kind of word gay as a pejorative, even people who were mature Christians, but again, it just made me feel like I could never tell you what's going on. I remember good friends of mine saying, oh, that's so gay, referring to different things around them. And it just made me feel like I have to keep this secret. Uh, Tim Keller, the the, the preacher in New York, once said that our churches should feel like the waiting room for a doctor's surgery and not like the waiting room for a job interview. So think about it. The waiting room for a job interview, everyone is trying to look as, as smart and impressive as they can. You're trying to appear flawless. And that is the kind of front you put on. Whereas if you're waiting for a doctor... 
You don't generally care if you're not looking your best. And the assumption is you're in that waiting room because there's something wrong with you. And if you were so minded, you could turn to the person next to you and say, so what's wrong with you? Why are you here? And actually, that is how our churches should feel. Uh, We're not there because we're Christians who've got everything sorted out. We're there precisely because we're Christians who don't have everything sorted out. And so we need to create the culture in our churches where it's okay not to be okay. I'm still under the this point of making it safe to talk about, we need to be teaching on this issue pastorally and not just politically. And I'm sure I'm, I'm preaching to con- the converted on this. But I know particularly here in the States where homosexuality has been such a big part of the culture war that discussing the issue as one of the great big political evils out there has made Christians within the church feel like they're not supposed to be there. Uh, We need to teach in a way that will equip equip the flock and guide those who are afflicted. Also under this point, we must make sure we don't look down on this sin in particular. Um, A year or two ago, I was talking to a group of pastors in the UK on this issue, and uh, one of them said to me, I was talking about how we can try and reach out to our LGBT friends and neighbours, And one of the pastors said to me, how can you talk to a gay person without being disgusted by them? And I thought, well, points for honesty, if not for tax. (laughs) I was pretty stunned by the question, actually. And the only answer I could think of giving at that moment was to say, well, you can be more disgusted by your own sin. That's how not to be disgusted by someone else's sin, is to be more disgusted by your own Paul refers to himself in 1 Timothy as the, as the chief of sinners, the worst of sinners. And I don't think it's because Paul had done a survey of all the Christians he knew and discovered, ah, oh, as it turns out, I actually am the worst of all sinners. No, the point is when you know your own heart, it is very hard to imagine there is anyone else out there who is worse than you, who's more messed up. And if we're well acquainted with our own mess, we will actually be the kind of people who are far more approachable for other people wanting help with their mess. I was talking to a group of Christians who are struggling with this issue, and and one of them said to me, how do you know which friends to open up to or which people in church to open up to? How do you know who's safe? And I said, it tends to be people who who know something of their own brokenness that actually tend to be the people who will most understand and most help. Uh, We need to assume, by the way, that if anyone ever does open up to us on this issue, that it it probably wasn't an easy thing for them to do. Uh, When I first opened up um, to that pastor after that sermon... I remember I was in his study in fear and trembling, even though he'd given us permission to to share if this was an issue for us. I still felt very nervous. I still felt like the the, the sky would fall down or I would suddenly be engulfed in flames if I I spoke of this thing out loud. 
But when eventually I blurted out, I'm really struggling with homosexuality, the very first words out of his mouth were, thank you. He just looked at me and said, thank you so much for sharing that with me. He said, that, that must have been a really hard thing to, to admit just now. And he said, I feel really privileged that you would, you would share that with me. And I can't tell you what a comfort and a reassurance that was to me. And of course, once people do talk about this issue, we need to make sure we don't define them by it. Uh, we were thinking a bit about this last night. We're not defined by our sexuality. And the danger is if a Christian opens up on this issue, we, we think of them as though they're the Christian who's got the issue with, with sexuality. Uh, there's a guy in our church who had been quite open with us pastors about his own battles with homosexuality. And one of my colleagues was meeting up with him for lunch one day just to sort of check in and see how he was. And said, so how's, how's it going with, with homosexuality and, and with, with the struggle on that front? And this guy rebuked the pastor. And actually, it was a rebuke we needed to hear. He said, you do know that's not the only sin I'm struggling with, don't you? And he said, right now, he, he's a company director, and he said, right now, I am being a really ungodly boss. I'm being impatient with the, the staff. I'm being rude to them. I'm being aggressive and demanding. Actually, that is the thing I'm battling most at the moment, but you never ask me about that. And it was a really salutary reminder to us, actually, yeah, of course, this, you know, any given moment of any given day, there's any number of sins that we're struggling with. And just because someone struggles with same-sex attraction doesn't mean that's always going to be the big sin in their life. Does that make sense? So all of that was under make it safe to talk about. So apologies if you're on heading number five now. I'm on heading number three. So don't duck the issue. Make it safe to talk about. Uh, next one is honor singleness. Some people with same-sex attraction are able to, to marry. Uh, in some cases, they might find that their feelings change over time for one reason or another, and they find themselves now attracted to women and able to, to get married. I know a number of cases where uh, people's feelings haven't changed, but they have nevertheless met someone with whom they've had sufficient chemistry and attraction to be able to explore a romantic relationship and, and marriage. And in each case, they've been very open with their um, partner about their own struggles. But for many people, singleness may well be the long-term future. And we need to make sure we reflect what the Bible says about singleness being a positive thing. It's very easy for us to denigrate it. Um, I bumped into someone recently that I hadn't seen for a good 10 years. And when I'd known her 10 years ago, she'd been a colleague of mine. She'd had two teenage uh, kids. And so now I was seeing her again. I was thinking, your kids must now be in their late 20s. I said, how, how the kids? How's the family? And she said, oh, they're, they're fine. So-and-so is married and the other one's engaged. So they're both sorted. And I kind of know what she meant, but I still felt like saying to her, so what am I? Am I unsorted? 
And it's very easy to kind of speak of singles as if they're loose ends that need to be tied up. They're kind of annoying things that haven't kind of been sorted out and and paired up yet. I actually heard of a church recently, I think in Arkansas, uh, where the 20s and 30s group was called Pairs and Spares, which is possibly the crassest thing I've heard from a a church which is saying something. But actually, that's often what our church culture can feel like. And in the New Testament, singleness isn't described in terms of the absence of marriage. It's described in terms of the presence of an opportunity to serve the Lord. So in 1 Corinthians 7, sorry, 1 Corinthians 7, as you call it over here, Um, This is a big cultural divide, I've noticed. My Bible says, if I turn up Corinthians, it's got the number one before the word Corinthians. So I call it one Corinthians, but I think you call it first Corinthians. But we can still be united in Christ. (laughs) Uh, First Corinthians 7 does talk about the fact that single people are spared certain troubles. Um, There are are certain trials, certain anxieties of this life that I am spared by virtue of being single. Was talking to uh, some friends of mine just recently who've got um, three kids, the oldest of whom is a a teenager, a family I'm, I'm very close to, and they were talking about how one of their children now is saying he no longer thinks of himself as a Christian. And uh, this friend of mine, this parent, was telling me this through gulps of of tears and uh, deep, deep pain. And it made me think there are certain trials, certain wounds and pains in this world that actually I'm spared by not being a parent. So there are certain things we are spared, but Paul's focus more is actually on the opportunity that comes with being single. So in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 32, Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul is not saying that singleness is far more spiritual than being married. But he is saying the way in which you can serve the Lord as a single person is far more undivided than the way you can serve the Lord as a married person. Life is just slightly less complicated. Uh, There is a capacity we can have as single people, which is not always the case with those who are married. Now, that doesn't mean... All the single people in your church should be on every roster for every kind of activity and never having, you know, they don't need any free time. They're single, so they can do everything. 
It may not refer to the amount of time we have, but it does refer to the fact that we can be giving ourselves wholly in a way that would be difficult if we were married. Um, It is very easy, comparatively, for me as a single person to come all the way to Southern California for a few days. I don't have to sort of spend hours logistically trying to think through who's going to help the kids get to school and, and do I need to help get provision for my wife while I'm away? Do I, you know, who's going to feed the cat or anything like that? I could just think, yep, dates are free in the diary, put it in, block, book the tickets. Uh, it's a bit more straightforward. But my friends, and I say this as a, a friend of, of my brothers and sisters here in the States, my observation is that actually it is hard being single in the church scene in the UK. I think it is much harder being single in the church scene in the USA. Uh, singleness I see in a number of churches I've, I've been to over the last few years is still regarded as a bit of a weirdness. There's something wrong with you if you're single beyond a certain age. Uh, This was brought home to me uh, recently. I was talking to um, a group of uh, American pastors, and it it suddenly dawned on me that actually you don't often have pastors in the U.S. who are single. And so I've been surveying American friends of mine recently and saying, how many single pastors do you know? And by single, I don't mean in their mid-20s and not married yet. I mean over 40 and most likely long-term single And most people have struggled to think of anyone. I'm sure there are, and I'm sure you can tell me people that you know of, and they're the exception and all the rest of it. But in the UK, we have always had the example of of godly men like John Stott, Vaughan Roberts. We've always had, even among our kind of statesman leaders, pastors who've been single as well as pastors who've been married. We've always had that category of pastors who are single. Whereas it strikes me here that there be many churches that are happy to have Paul as an apostle, but would struggle to have Paul as a pastor. And the implication seems to be, well, of course we want a married pastor, because if they're single, there's probably something a bit wrong with them, isn't there, if they're still single? Is that fair? You can uh, come back to me on that afterwards if you like. So we do need to honour singleness and not just build our church culture around couples and families. Again, as we were thinking last night, the most complete and fully human person who ever walked this earth was himself single. And uh, we need to reflect that in our own churches. So we need to honour singleness Uh, Next point, I make it number four, but goodness knows where you're up to by now. Uh, We need to promote friendship. Uh, We need to show that long-term singleness, not just for those with same-sex attraction, but for those who are single for any reason, is still a context in which we can flourish relationally. And for many Christians I know with same-sex attraction, the greatest battle isn't sexual temptation... 
it's loneliness. And too often in our churches, when someone is uh, open about struggling with same-sex attraction, that the reaction of the church leadership can be, well, we must, we must get accountability, and, you know, every month I'm going to drill you with, with questions about your fantasy life and internet accountability and all the rest of it. And that's good, but friends, that is not pastoral care. Uh, the greatest pain is often loneliness. Uh, one of the reasons for that is because the culture in which we live has pretty much collapsed intimacy into sex. And we sort of folded the two things into each other. And we've got to the point now as a culture where we can't really conceive that there is a real possibility of, possibility of intimacy without it being really about sex. Uh, we can't imagine non-sexual forms of intimacy, of closeness. Uh, that is a peculiarly Western way to think. It is a relatively recent way to think, and I want to suggest it is a profoundly unhealthy and unbiblical way to think. And the fruit of it is that we have downgraded friendship in our own Western context. Uh, friend used to be a noun, we've turned it into a verb. A verb which means, in effect, to share your contact details with someone else through social media. That is friending someone. And so friend has now become really acquaintance. Someone who's in my address book or on my, my list of contacts. And all the real action is found within a, a kind of romantic partnership or a sexual relationship. But friends, the, the biblical teaching on friendship is very, very different indeed. Uh, if you want to do some edifying homework after this conference, go through the book of Proverbs and study what the book of Proverbs has to say about friendship. Uh, if you want something to help you do that, there's a wonderful little book called True Friendship uh, by Vaughan Roberts. I think it's less than 100 pages, so it's not going to take you forever to read. But going through what Proverbs teaches on this issue... And it is quite eye-opening given our own culture. Uh, Proverbs shows us you cannot be wise without friends. And the kind of friendship Proverbs means, the way in which Proverbs conceives of friendship, is not just someone you occasionally hang out with or watch a game with or whatever you like to do to unwind. No, Proverbs speaks of friendship in a, as being someone who knows your soul. It's a soul-to-soul -soul relationship. I need to find uh, Ian and check his Hebrew knowledge of this, but I, somebody said recently that the word for friendship in Hebrew is related to the word for secret. In other words, the, the friend is the person you share the most inner secret things of your own life with. Someone you share the, the deepest issues with. 
And Proverbs says we need that kind of friendship. And as someone who's been in pastoral ministry and seen a lot of marriages go through ups and downs, can I just say as well that married people need that kind of friendship as much as single people do. Um, If you look to your spouse for all of your friendship needs, actually you're putting a pressure on them they're not really designed uh, to bear. And so we need to promote friendship within our, our church cultures. We need to facilitate it. We need to encourage it. Uh, We need to to preach it. Uh, Next point. Uh, We need to remember that church is family. We're going to think a bit more about this uh, later on this evening. The language the New Testament most consistently uses to describe fellow believers within your own church community is the language of close family. So Paul can say to Timothy, treat older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Paul doesn't say to Timothy, treat older men as a great uncle, treat younger men as a distant cousin. No, we are to use the category of close family to regard our fellow believers in our church communities. Uh, That is not meant to be an honorary thing, where I honorarily call you brother or sister. It is actually reflective of reality. We are now part of the same family. God has put us together in his household, the church. Uh, We're told that God puts the lonely into families. And in the New Testament, that the families into which he puts them are church families. And so it should be the, the case that our churches are places of very real community. And for those of us who do have uh, biological families of our own, actually our biological families need the input of others within the the wider church family as well. Uh, This shouldn't be offensive and it shouldn't be controversial, but back in the UK um, it seems to be, if I want to wind up and agitate the parents in my church, one of the things I need to say is that no two parents can be everything their children need them to be. Which strikes me eminently as common sense. And I don't know what the situation is like here, but in churches back home, that is a real idol. This uh, notion that actually we've we've got to be self-contained and self-sufficient as a family. Uh, But the fact is you can't. You can't be everything your kids need you to be. You're, you're, you're limited. You're, you're sinful. Uh, one of the reasons your children need the input of other people in your church family is, if I can say this without causing too much offense, is because they're your children, I mean this in love, they're going to turn out a bit weird. 
And having the input of other people in the wider church family is a wonderful moderating kind of effect actually on that dynamic. Your family is a bit weird. And if you're thinking, our family's not weird, everyone else's family is weird, let me assure you, everyone else thinks your family is a bit weird. (laughs) We're all a bit weird. You put two mixed up sinners in the same room and and they procreate, you're going to get weirdness within the family culture. Again, we'll, we'll talk about this a bit more later on this evening, but anyone who comes to your church should be able to say after a certain period of time, do you know what, I now have more family, more community, and more intimacy in my life than I did before I came to this church. If a a gay couple who have been legally married and have adopted or acquired children... If they come to your church and come to faith, and these things wonderfully happen, it may well be that for the sake of their ongoing discipleship and fidelity to the Lord, that they need to kind of break up their family arrangement. It may well be that one of the couple needs to to not be living under the roof anymore. Uh, Where children are involved, that gets even more complicated, even more messy. And it feels a bit like we're breaking up a family. They should be able to say, after a given period of time, do you know what? I have more family and not less because I've come to Christ. That's the challenge. It's not going to happen unless we are being family to one another in our churches. And let me just say one other thing on this. It's often been said to me by, if you ever go to a a seminar or hear teaching on how to share your faith with Muslims, one of the things that we're often told is if you're going to start sharing the gospel with a Muslim friend, you need to be willing to let them live in your spare room if it comes to it. Don't start them off the process unless you're willing to kind of be there for them in it. Because if they come to faith, it may well be that they're kicked out of their family home and now need a place to live. So if you're going to share the gospel with them, you're going to need to give them... You've got to be prepared that actually that might entail giving them a copy of your house key at some point. I want to say, if we're going to say to to people with same-sex attraction in our churches that in order to be godly, you need to be celibate... Again, if we're going to say that to people, we've got to be willing to open up our family lives to others. Otherwise, we're putting people in a very, very difficult situation indeed. Uh, Next point, I've I've given up with the numbers. I'm on number six. Uh, We need to provide good pastoral care. Now, some of that does include accountability. There is a place for that and a need for it. But there are other uh, means of pastoral care as well. Um, At my church, we, uh, a couple of years ago, set up a support group for Christians with uh, same-sex attraction. Uh, We decided when we set it up that we would meet just uh, a maximum of four times a year. Uh, We didn't want this group to be a kind of 
replacement for our regular small groups at church. We don't want people to think, well, I can only be understood and do the Christian life with other people who have this issue. And we made as one of the ground rules that you could only join the group if you were already committed to the Bible's teaching. Uh, we didn't want every time we met to be arguing over what Romans 1 does and doesn't mean. Another ground rule was that no one outside the group knows who's in it. So we advertise that we have a group and that the meeting is coming up, but we don't publicize where or when it meets in case people try to sort of put two and two together with, you know, where's so-and-so tonight? Oh, I wonder if they're at that, that group. I want to respect people's privacy. Now, the first time we ran that group, I invited the, the people I knew in the church who had shared with me that this was an issue for them, invited them to that first meeting, and 24 hours before that meeting, virtually every single one of them wrote to me and said, I'm not sure I'm going to come, I'm, I've, I'm a bit nervous, I, I think I'll probably give it a miss if that's okay. And I remember getting back in touch with each of them and, and saying, listen, please come once. Uh, if you come once and you decide this isn't going to be for you, then I promise I will never pester you about coming ever again. But please come once. And every single person who then came contacted me the next day and said, I am so glad I came to that group. And when I said to them, you know, what, why in particular is that? They said that the power and value of hearing somebody else articulate what you thought you were the only person to experience. They said was just a huge encouragement. A couple of them said, I, I just realize I'm now not the only person who, who has these experiences. Uh, when we set up that Living Out website, we didn't really know how it would be received or how it would be used, but we've been really blown away the number of times we've got emails from obscure parts of the world from people saying things like for the first time in my life I've realized I'm I'm not alone in this battle it's a great comfort and the final feature of this uh, group is it is it's, it's the senior pastor of the church and his wife who who lead it uh, he he wanted to personally kind of be involved in this group to, to hear what people are going through to to let that inform his own leadership of the church and his own preaching particularly as he preaches on this issue when it comes up uh, he didn't want those people to feel like they were just a kind of kind of fringe ministry but actually he wanted to make sure it was something he was directly involved with himself so that's that's one way you can do it um, the final point I've got, and then we'll, we'll have some time for, for Q&A, is simply this. Let the church be church. And for this, if you could turn to 1 Timothy, or 1 Timothy if you're English, uh, chapter 3. Uh, Paul does one of those things in his letters, which is a great help if you're a, a preacher. He tells you why he's written the letter. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, 
But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So that's great. Paul said, the reason I've written the letter is that you know how people ought to behave, how people ought to conduct themselves in the church. And notice how he describes church. He describes it in two ways. He calls the church the pillar and foundational or buttress of the truth. And if you think about it, that's, that's kind of surprising. Uh, you would expect Paul to say the truth is the foundation of the church. If you take the truth away, the church will eventually collapse. But Paul says there is a sense in which the church is the foundation of the truth. Not in the sense that the church determines the truth, but in the sense that the truth, sorry, the church is God's appointed means of holding out the truth in this world. And so if you take the church away, the truth doesn't have an outlet. In that sense, the church is the pillar, the buttress, uh, the foundation of the, of the truth. Does that make sense? That's why we can say there are, there are no God-forsaken places in this world, but there are church-forsaken places. So Paul describes the church on one hand as the, the pillar and foundation of the truth. He also describes the church at the beginning of verse 15 as the family or the household of God. The local church is God's household. When God draws people to himself, he draws them into families. So these two things that the church is, the family of God and the foundation of the truth, the pillar of the truth, are very much bound together. In other words, for the church to be an effective pillar of the truth, for the church to be an effective disseminator and outlet of the truth, it needs to be an effective family. And friends, when the church is an effective family, it does wonders to the impact of God's truth in our communities and in our regions. My conviction is that God's strategy for for winning people to the truth on this whole issue of, of homosexuality is not primarily to try and catapult Christians into the kind of cultural stratosphere and to try and win the politicians and the cultural leaders around. Though, praise God, there are faithful people doing that work. No, the main strategy is actually God is going to win people at the ground level through local churches. And so my hope and prayer is that actually that the watching world will look at our churches and say, do you know what, what those folks believe in that church is absolutely crazy, 
But the people who go there are always better for having gone there. And I suspect it will only be when the world sees people from the gay community coming to faith and flourishing in our churches that they will begin to be one to the truth of what we have to say. Well, let's um, pause there. We've got time for... I'd love to hear any questions or, or comments or thoughts that you might have. Anyone want to kick us off? Yeah, at the back. Yeah. Thank. You. I'm going to repeat the questions. I think this is being recorded and, and and things. So that the question is, what percentage roughly of people are normally same sex attracted? So in a in our own churches, we can get a sense of probably how many there would be who are personally affected by this issue. Um, I, I would need to look it up. I've got in my head the number 5% that is often bandied around. Now, the immediate problem with these statistics is that very often they are predicated on the question of... It's, it's often people who've had any kind of same-sex homosexual feeling at any point. So that 5% may not be people for whom this is a long-term issue... It may include people who've had, at some point, a homosexual feeling. And uh, in my experience, there have been quite a significant number of folks who've gone through a a period of same-sex attraction, often during teenage years, only for them to kind of gradually grow out of it, as it were. And so I wouldn't want to hold that 5% hard and fast, because I think it's a slightly slippery thing. I think the numbers who would be if you like, long-term same-sex attracted are much lower than that. But it, it, it probably 2 3%, that kind of thing. So it's just worth thinking in a church of a, of a thousand... Um, oh, my goodness, this is going to test my mathematical skills, but that would be, what, 30 people? Is that right? Um, yep. Yeah, good. <laughs> Um, it's, just, it's just worth thinking, probably. I mean, obviously, we'd, we'd, no church ever conforms to these statistics anyway, but that would be the ballpark, I would imagine. It's always better just to assume there are people in your church struggling with any issue, however statistically unlikely it may be, because it's better to err on the side of addressing people on the assumption that they, they do struggle with it rather than people never having the opportunity to share that they do. Yes, sir? Thank you. So, yes, the, the question is, I've, I've used the, the language of struggling with same-sex attraction rather than being a gay Christian. Is that intentional? Uh, it is. And, again, it, it's, um, 
It's because theologically, well, certainly where I'm aware different terms have different connotations in different places, but where I come from, the word gay is much more of a descriptor of, much more than just a descriptor of the kinds of sexual feelings you have. It is an identity word. It's generally used to describe who you are and not just what you feel. And theologically, one of the, the a key point of importance to me is that these temptations are not who I am. They're part of what I sometimes experience, but actually they are not my identity, and it's not healthy for me to, to think of them as my identity. Uh, again, we'll touch on this later on tonight, but I'm as a Christian, I'm not defined by my sinful desires. I'm defined by my standing in Christ. And I'll tell you tonight why that makes a huge difference when it comes to fighting for holiness. Um, I'm not going to kind of cast fire from heaven on people who do use the language of, of gay Christians. I know that there are a number who would, who would do that whilst being committed to the Bible's teaching and, and be committed to celibacy and things like that. But I, I don't think it's wise. Yes, at the back. Thank you. Do we have a format for the, the group at our church? Uh, we, we did, and I quickly threw it out of the window. So I had thought each time we meet, I'm going to prepare something that we can then think about and discuss that can be a bit of a focal point for the meeting. What I found, though, for the, certainly for the first year and a half, is that asking the question, so how are things going, was more than enough for the whole meeting. Um, again, it was one of those things where people were a bit kind of cagey at first. We're English, and we don't like being open anyway, so there's that <laughs> whole issue. Um, and so that the first time we met, I said, listen, it's great to have you here. Feel free to share as much or as little as you feel comfortable doing. If you just want to be a fly on the wall and listen in to others, that's absolutely fine. We're just great. We're just so glad you're here. If you want to kind of spill the beans and tell us what's going on and you're safe to do that here, we're, you know, be as open as you, as you want to be. And we sort of went, I said, so let's just quickly go around and again, you can just give your name and, and pass and not have to say anything else. And the first two or three people said, um, this, is, this is who I am, I'm, I'm happy just to listen. And then person number three said, this is who I am and this is these are the issues I'm struggling with and just poured out everything. And they were so open that the first two people said, can, can, we, can, can we now join in? Because actually they just needed someone else to kind of get the ball rolling. And so we found after one or two people had been very vulnerable, the dam burst and now the whole group was kind of pouring out where they were at. And therefore uh, the next several sessions were just, how's stuff going since last time? And if anything, we had to kind of restrict the amount of time each person could share for so that we could make sure everyone got to, to kind of contribute. Now, since then, we thought, well, let's... Now that we've kind of really got to know each other, we can now introduce a few kind of particular topics. So there are the general themes that have come out of our sharings that I thought, well, let's, let's zero in on that and think about it a bit more. So one of the, the big issues has been um, over-dependency in friendships. That's been a common theme of, of people's struggles. And so 
every now and then I've, I've found a good article on you know, unhealthy dependency and how we can avoid it in our friendships. And I've emailed it around the group and said, let's have a think about this for, for, for when we meet and we've had a, a discussion. So sometimes we will have a little kind of a mini agenda. Uh, is it possible to get my email address? It is. Uh, yes, if you come up afterwards. I don't tend to give it out to everyone because occasionally I get nasty things, but you look nice, so I'll, um, I'll trust you with it. Uh, yes, I, uh, sorry. Yes, yes, you. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, I've, I've titled this Loving Christians Struggling with Same-Sex Attraction. So I'm presuming by the word struggle that these are unwanted same-sex temptations. Uh, and so I'm not thinking specifically of those who are, if you like, reconciled to their same-sex attraction and happy to embrace it and comfortable with it. I think we, we need to love them as well, um, clearly. But I'm thinking primarily of how do, we, how do we serve the Christian who wants to be faithful to Christ. Uh, when it comes to people who call themselves Christians but who have embraced the lifestyle, obviously lots of these points are still apply, but, but our message is that the, the kind of more urgent issue is calling people to repentance. Um, because if they're, if they're engaging in a long-term sin that they're not repenting of, the scriptures are very clear about the, the danger of, of doing that. Um, and particularly if they're calling themselves Christians all the while. So, again, we want to do that in a way that we've, we've listened to them first. We've, we've made sure we've understood them. And it helps to know the journey people have, have traveled on to do that. But there have certainly been instances where I can think of, of folks both in my church and outside of it who have described themselves as mature Christians and yet who have said that they are happy as Christians being in a gay lifestyle. And, uh, uh, you know, that there's, a, there's a point where we need to try to correct lovingly people's thinking on that and call them to submit to, to God's word all the while being loving toward them. Yeah. Thank you. So some people will say they're, they're born this way. Um, what, what do we say about that? Um, it, as far as I know, that the science hasn't yet landed on whether this is a genetic issue or not. Um, so I don't think... There's a scientific case for saying we are born, some people are born with a predisposition towards homosexuality. It might well be that there is. Then they, they, you know, that might be something we discover at some point. I, I don't think it makes much difference either way because we understand from our, our doctrine of original sin that all of us are born fallen which means we are, we are born sinners. We're not born neutral, and then we become sinners when we sin. 
we are already born sinners, which is why we sin. And it's a useful distinction to know because actually it means that we are already born with, with disorders, with disordered hearts and disordered minds. And we're born with a propensity to sin. And we will express that in one way or another way, but all of us are born with that propensity. And therefore, what feelings or dispositions you are born with doesn't necessarily reflect how God has created you, but how sin has distorted you. So even if it turns out I was born with a genetic predisposition toward homosexuality, that in no way makes it morally good. I know people who are born with a predisposition towards anger or any number of other things. It's just a reminder, as as Jesus said, we weren't born right the first time and we need to be born again. Does that help? Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. So promoting friendship and and relational flourishing, what what should that look like? Um, I think generally, when it comes to Christians with same-sex attraction, that the most important piece of wisdom is cultivate several close friendships. Have a a band of good friends. Because for many of us, the danger is that one friendship becomes the focus of kind of an unhealthy dependency and kind of emotional attachments that are unhealthy and all that kind of thing. And so I think what we need to think through then is what is, the, what is a healthy way of experiencing intimacy? And I think for many of us, we've, we've found that actually if we have a, a group of friends... It means we can be experiencing actually a wonderful range of of friendships and intimacy, which in itself is a great blessing, but it also protects any one of those friendships from becoming the kind of Messiah friend that we're tempted to kind of really put all of our focus and attention on. Um, So the issue then is, Again, it's trying to think through what is the healthy way of having intimacy rather than just saying to someone, don't have intimacy, because we, we need intimacy. We're, we're created for intimacy. So that, that would be my, my guidance on that. Yes. Thank you. So yeah, how do we handle other sins that are kind of that need to be addressed from the pulpit? Um, I, I guess two ways. One is because we're committed to expositional teaching, 
it means that whatever the Bible puts on the table, eventually, we, at some point, we have to get around to talking about, which is great. Um, so that means we, we're, we're dealing with the issues that God's Word is telling us to deal with. And obviously, a lot of these issues come up. And so it's interesting that where sexual sins are, are, are mentioned, often it's in the context of a list of a whole range of sins. And so that, that's a good way of reminding ourselves that, you know, gluttony and greed and gossip and slander are, are also sinful and put in the same box as fornication or, you know, some of these other sexual sins. And we need to make sure we're hitting all of them and not just kind of zeroing in on the sexual ones and, and dealing with them. And certainly in a very consumerist Western culture, we've got to be talking about greed because that's one of the sins, again, where our culture is saying, hey, this is a good thing, and it's fine, and we need to be saying, it's deadly. Uh, we need to be careful. So that, that's one way, is it's just trying to reflect the balance and proportion of Scripture. The other way, obviously, is that as, as pastors, we need to be knowing that the lives of the church family well enough to know what some of the predominant struggles are. And so we run regular men's weekends away, women's weekends away, and we feed back from those to the leadership what kinds of issues are coming up, not, not by naming names and saying, well, did you know so-and-so is really struggling with pornography? But just to say, yeah, porn is a big issue amongst the guys. And actually, when you begin to discern certain sins are particularly pre- prevalent, that might mean that you think, okay, we're going to do some teaching specifically on this issue because it's... It's such a biggie in the church. So, so I guess that it, it waters down just that laser focus on same sex. So it isn't like, oh, that's what this church is all about. Exactly, yes. So I don't think anyone would think our church is a, is a same-sex attraction church or anything like that. In fact, the issue doesn't come up very often in the pulpit. Uh, so again, because we've got this group that meets four times a year, that gives us an excuse at least four times a year to say a number of us in the church are battling with the temptation of homosexual desire and you know we've got a, a group for that if that's if that's something you're battling with if you never shared that it gives us a chance just to kind of shake the tree a bit and see if anyone else is out there who needs help but it it doesn't single it out because we're talking about a bunch of other stuff as well friends time is up so let me pray for us and then i'll uh, dismiss us Father, again, we need your help and we need your wisdom, and so we thank you for your guidance, for your word, uh, for your spirit. Father, please continue to give us wisdom from the scriptures, help our churches to be places of, of grace and truth, of love and kindness. And Father, it is our prayer that all of your people would flourish in our fellowships, whatever their background, whatever their battles and struggles might be. And we pray this uh, for your name's sake. Amen. Copyright 2016 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.